0: Welcome back to podcast number three of what to gain for your brain. Before we talk to our guests today, let's talk a little bit more about vitamin D. Last episode, we learned about how vitamin D has receptors in almost all places in the brain, can freely pass the blood-brain barrier, influences both the prevention of oxidative damage to nervous tissue and the expression of genes and proteins involved in neuronal structure, physiological function, metabolism, blood vessels, heart function, and blood pressure and regulates synthesis of neurotransmitters and nerve growth factors. Let's talk about vitamin D, immunity, brain disorders, and mood disorders. In addition to neurotransmitter and neurotrophin regulation, vitamin D also exerts immune benefits and fights inflammation in the brain. Vitamin D can help infection by delivering inflammatory mediators through capillaries. Sufficiency in vitamin D also buffers and decreases the Th1 cellular immune response which is pro-inflammatory, and increases the Th2 response, which is anti-inflammatory. Pro-inflammatory cytokines associated with the Th1 response include interleukin-6, TNF-alpha, and interferon-gamma, which decrease in the presence of vitamin D, while anti-inflammatory cytokines associated with the Th2 immune response include interleukin-4, interleukin-5, interleukin-10, interleukin-13, and immunoglobulin E, an increase in the presence of vitamin D. These factors are important when considering the increase in pro-inflammatory cytokines that can occur during ischemic injury. Through the regulation of inflammatory markers in disease or injury, vitamin D proves itself important for a properly functioning immune system. While vitamin D plays a significant role in protein regulation, neurotransmitter synthesis, NGF production, and immune function, it has also recently been connected to neurological disease. For example, since vitamin D receptors are also found in striatal dopaminergic locations such as the caudate putamen and the nucleus accumbens, 125-dihydroxyvitamin D has been found to protect against toxic 6-hydroxydopamine and methamphetamine levels by preserving dopamine and serotonin. Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative disorder involving the loss of dopamine cell bodies in the substantia nigra, and people with Parkinson's disease have been found to have increased rates of production of 125-dihydroxyvitamin D and a deficiency in 125-dihydroxyvitamin D compared to healthy controls. Vitamin D binding proteins have been shown to increase in the cerebral spinal fluid in Parkinson's disease patients, and vitamin D3 supplementation has also been previously recommended to help treat Parkinson's disease. This evidence indicates vitamin D's influence on proper functioning in the nervous system involved in specific neurological diseases. Additionally, investigations into how early vitamin D deficiency could lead to dementia, autism, or schizophrenia have been done due to effects on the developing brain by inducing changes in volume, shape, cell proliferation, and growth factor expression. A study in May of 2018 revealed that vitamin D deficiency in mothers and their offspring showed learning and memory deficits as well as increased lateral ventricle volume, indicating cognitive impairment. Direct relationships between cognitive impairment, dementia, and vitamin D deficiency have been made, as well as higher 25-hydroxy-D3 serum concentrations in utero or at the beginning of life, leading to a lower risk of autism. It has also been speculated that vitamin D deficiency changed expression in neurons of genes involved in dopamine and glucocorticoid pathways, leading to autism and schizophrenic disorders. In a study with vitamin D depleted rat pups, vitamin D deficiency induced a 30% increase in brain hemisphere length, a 200% increase in lateral ventricle volume, a doubling of the mitotic rate in the brain and decreases of 17% and 25% in the expression of NGF and GDNF, respectively, compared to control. The findings of enlarged lateral ventricles and reduced cortical thickness are two frequently reported neuropathological findings in patients with schizophrenia. Although these studies are still in their early stages, it is being speculated that initial vitamin D deficiency in the brain could lead to increased risks of developing dementia, autism, or schizophrenia. Vitamin D deficiencies have also been linked to mood disorders such as depression. Low levels of serotonin in the hippocampus have been reported in depression, and animal studies have shown anatomical and behavioral changes in the hippocampus with low serum vitamin D. Additionally, a reduction in calcium levels can reduce depressive symptoms and vitamin D influences intracellular calcium homeostasis by regulating the expression of calcium pumps when levels in the neuron increase. Through regulation of calcium in the neuron and serotonin synthesis in the hippocampus, vitamin D may be able to reduce depressive symptoms. Let's introduce our guest today. We are going to talk to Dr. Kenneth Langa. Dr. Langa is currently the Cyrus Sturgis Professor in the Department of Internal Medicine and Institute for Social Research, a research scientist in the Veterans Affairs Center for Clinical Management and Research, and an associate director of the Institute of Gerontology at the University of Michigan. He obtains an MD and PhD in public policy at the University of Chicago as a fellow in the Pew program for medicine, arts, social sciences, and is also an elected member of the American Society for Clinical Investigation and an elected fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Among his many positions, he also serves as the Associate Director of the Health and Retirement Study, which is funded by the National Institute on Aging, and follows 20,000 U.S. adults for data on the aging process. Dr. Lange's research focuses on Alzheimer's disease, as well as different types of dementia, among other chronic diseases in older adults. While having published more than 250 peer-reviewed articles on cognitive decline and the epidemiology and costs of these diseases on older adults, he has also been a visiting professor at the University of Cambridge and the World Health Organization in Switzerland, as well as the University of California, San Francisco. With Dr. Lange, we are going to talk a little bit more about how cardiovascular disease is a central issue in the pathology of cognitive decline, the social and economic impacts of stroke recovery, Dealing with confounding factors of measuring vitamin D and the brain health advice he gives his patients. Let's get into the discussion. Tell me about your background, um, growing up in education. What got you interested in the brain?
1: Sure, and are um, well, actually, you talked about a neurosurgeon. That uh, that actually is uh, a neurosurgeon is uh, important in my history, I grew, well, as you know, grew up in northern New Jersey, and uh, just before college started losing the vision or losing vision in my right eye. And uh, long story short, as I uh, went to Columbia Presbyterian, just uh, in the northern part of Manhattan, and was diagnosed with a tumor, uh, it's called a craniopharyngioma, right near my pituitary gland that was um, pressing on my optic nerve in there, and that's why I was losing sight. And I had an amazing, so I had to have a neurosurgical procedure to remove the uh, the tumor and had that done at Columbia. But anyway, uh, Dr. Post was a very um, uh, amazing doctor, sort of got me interested in medicine. And uh, I thought I went off to college thinking I was going to be a neurosurgeon, but then uh, kind of got interested in some other things, was a sociology major at uh, Amherst College and ended up... Um, getting interested in sort of social aspects of health and how um, environment and socioeconomic status and things like that interact with um, biological things uh, to affect people's health, so that affect people's health. So that's uh, sort of the direction I went off on and ended up doing an MD and a PhD at the University of Chicago, and uh, the PhD was in public policy. It was sort of a um, not a typical MD, PhD, so I've been kind of working on the, those areas of um, epidemiology, public policy, and uh, health since since that, uh, that, tr- that joint training at University of Chicago, and then came here to the uh, University of Michigan in 1994 and finished up my internal medicine residency training, and then have been on the faculty. Uh, here at uh, the University of Michigan, ever since, and uh, again, the work that I've ended up doing is is very much um, kind of in the um, trying to understand social factors, biological factors, and how do uh, how do those things affect health? And again, have ended up just specifically focused on uh, brain health and dementia, and what are the what are the both sort of biological and social factors that that Put people at higher or lower risk for for cognitive decline and uh, dementia later in life. How's that? Was that a that was a whirlwind run through my, uh, my 50, was... 50, 58 years of, uh, of growth <laughs> and. Uh, and career, but
0: um, I was going to say, you the, made that sound easy. You're just like, yeah. oh, I went to Chicago, And um, yeah, thank you for that. That was, that was perfect. In your research about the population trends in dementia prevalence, how have um, cardiovascular risk factors played a role, would you say?
1: Um, well, I think they've been a central issue. And again, that's uh, one, one area we've ended up, myself and our research group has ended up spending a lot of time on. And um, Yeah, I think um, some of the interesting kind of developments in um, understanding cognitive decline and dementia over the last twenty years or so have been a better understanding of the kind of complexity of the of the pathologies that lead to uh, cognitive decline, Alzheimer's disease, and other other brain pathologies. So I think. 20 years ago, for instance, um, it was thought that Alzheimer's disease, you know, was sort of, in some ways, an isolated, a clear a pathological process that there was, you know, for some reason, um, these abnormal proteins, amyloid and tau, would would build up in the brain, and it was thought if we could figure out that uh, that one pathological pathway, we'd be able to cure Alzheimer's disease, hopefully. But I think it's become clearer that uh, the cardiovascular risks and the vascular system, you know, both the uh, large vessels, uh, carotid arteries going up to the brain, and then the the small vessels within the brain um, are hugely important for um, brain health in general, but actually seem to uh, interact very significantly with the Alzheimer's disease pathology itself, so in a couple ways. One is that as more um, data got collected from population-based studies where um, people donated their brains, so you'd follow people uh, over time and uh, when they died you'd be able to do autopsies on their brains, it became very clear that um, most people who have dementia at older ages don't just have a single pathology. They don't just have Alzheimer's disease, abnormal proteins, and don't just have strokes or, or vascular pathology, but almost all of them have what's called, you know, mixed pathologies or mixed dementia. And so, um, so things were kind of more complicated than just, Oh, if we, if we sort out this Alzheimer's pathway, we'll, we'll cure things. It's not so easy because there's these vascular um. Uh, vascular pathways that both again cause their own pathology like strokes and you know vascular dementia but also the the blood flow and the cardiovascular and cerebrovascular circulation seem to have an important um impact on whether the Alzheimer's disease pathology pathway gets going and some people even think that in many ways Alzheimer's disease is is actually a vascular Disease that uh, it's the under perfusion of the brain because of atherosclerosis or because of blood pressure troubles that cause uh, that cause changes in the blood vessels that that's actually kind can, can kind of kick off the Alzheimer's disease process. That's a simplification, of course. There are you know there's some some Alzheimer's disease that is um, entirely or. Almost entirely due to kind of genetic mutation, sort of early onset Alzheimer's disease, and it's those those people that have very clear, you know, their brains are almost entirely filled just with the Alzheimer's proteins. But that's a very small portion of the of what we think of with Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And again, it's it's most often this um, this kind of complicated interaction between. Alzheimer's pathology and vascular pathology and and the blood flow to the brain that causes, that's the most common sort of cause for people to have cognitive decline and dementia. So that was a long-winded background, but that uh, with that, um, you know, if if you buy that argument that um, blood flow to the brain is extremely important and therefore interruptions in blood flow are very important, clearly if we can do a better job of keeping people's vascular systems healthy uh, late into life um, almost certainly will decrease their risks for cognitive decline, um, both from Alzheimer's disease and other, and and vascular problems. And again, our, some of the work we've done and other people have done, we would argue that that, that could be, or is likely a reason that there seems to have been some decline in the Uh, dementia risk over the last 25 years or so in in high-income countries, that we're doing a better job of treating some of these risk factors, especially hypertension, cholesterol, diabetes, things like that.
0: Yeah, I I definitely buy the argument. Um, I guess that's a good segue into a different question. Um, In the comparison of health outcomes among high and low-income adults age 55 Mm -hmm. to 64 in the U.S. Mm -hmm. versus England, So, yeah, I remember I mentioned the U.S. compared to U.K. had like a higher than two times more likely risk ratio for stroke. And then also U.S. and England were comparable in the top 20 percent, but U.S. was much higher in the lower 20 percent. So why do you think that is?
1: Yeah. So that um, yeah, that uh, paper that you mentioned, which I think what just came out six months or so ago, something like that within the last six months, Yeah, that was a paper we'd been working on for a long time uh, with uh, my colleague Hua Zhong Choi is the uh, first author on that paper. She's an economist uh, i work with here at Michigan. And that um, paper, uh, here's a digression, but uh, um, just to tell you a little bit about the the data that, um, Mm -hmm. the reason we had data both here in the United States and in England to kind of do that kind of comparative study is because the main study I work on here in Michigan's called the Health and Retirement Study and it's a big ongoing cohort study where we've been following about 20,000 adults in the United States since the early 1990s. It's funded by the National Institute on Aging and the one of the institutes of the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. And that um, um, the NIA um, decided about 20 years ago that it would be valuable if we could, start other studies um, like the Health and Retirement Study or the HRS as we call it, in other countries around the world in order to have longitudinal data to compare to the data that we're collecting here in the United States. So not only would it provide important information for each of the other countries, but um, you know it would be useful for us here in the United States because we could compare what's going on here to other places other countries, and that, you know, helps us understand what's going on in the United States as well. So that, um, the the study from England is called the English Longitudinal Study of Aging in ELSA, and we've been working closely with them for almost 20 years also, uh, again, to try to collect data in similar ways, and there's actually now about um, almost 40 countries around the world that are collecting data uh, like we do here in the United States, like on this HRS or the Health and Retirement Study, uh, because of the collaborations with um, and, so, and funding partly from the the NIH here. So that paper that you mentioned used data from HRS, the Health and Retirement Study here in the United States, and ELSA in in England to try to again, as you said, look at um, you know pretty basic epi- epidemiologic issues like which country has more people with stroke in which, uh, con- and which country and which country has um, more people who are disabled or, you know, have difficulties getting through the, the day and need help as well as um, cognitive function and dementia. And um, so what we found in that study was that um, adults sort of middle age, early, older age, 55 to 64, were basically less healthy here in the United States across the socioeconomic status range, but we have the the difference between rich and poor in the United States in terms of the health difference was significantly greater than the difference in England between rich and poor. You know, being poor in England um, was also associated with with worse health, but that uh, the difference between the upper and lower socioeconomic status in England was significantly less than here in the United States. So as you said, one of the one of the differences was um, stroke and, and cardiovascular disease as well as disability was worse here in the United States. Yeah, did you say about, <laughs> I forget the exact numbers, but uh, about twice as likely, uh, or the prevalence of stroke was about uh, two times higher in that 55 to 64 year old age group. Yeah, so again, to get back to your question, why why is it worse among those with lower socioeconomic status? Which, again, as you know, that's almost all health uh, health issues or, or health problems uh, seem to be worse among among those with lower socioeconomic status. Almost certainly, some of that is related to things like, um, you know, sort of more medical or healthcare related issues that um, people who are poor in the United States probably get treated for their blood pressure less well, get treated for their hypertension, uh, their high cholesterol less well. Um, They're also sort of more likely to smoke and have uh, those kind of cardiovascular risk factors. But that tip, that usually doesn't explain all of the difference between rich and poor. And uh, I think again, other things we're trying to study in which the HRS and these other epidemiologic studies are trying to collect data on things like the economic situation, but also characteristics of neighborhoods and things like pollution levels, uh, there's a lot more interest in uh, kind of the differential exposure to pollution during one's life and how does that affect heart disease and, and risks for Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And it does appear that being exposed to, um, you know, Worse environments, basically pollution in terms of uh, air pollution, but also lead exposure and things like that. Not surprisingly, it does bad bad things to your body. And it uh, one of the differences again between rich and poor neighborhoods is, uh, is this exposure to pollution. So I think that's that's another of the pieces we're we're still doing a lot of work on to try to understand that. So it's probably again the the reason why people with uh, fewer resources, economic resources have worse cardiovascular health again probably part of it is some of the health behaviors and, and cardiovascular risk factors but there's also likely other kind of environmental issues going on that, like pollution and other things as well as just obviously the sort of more difficult more difficulty in getting through life um, you know stressful issues or stress issues, um, economic stresses, um, discrimination all of those kinds of issues too so again those are those are huge uh, problems you and your uh, younger folks like yourself will be able to <laughs> yeah. hopefully get uh, get uh, a better handle of all those things and and make things better uh, going forward over the next 20 40 years but um, well, we yeah, couldn't do
0: were... it without your you know your study to set the groundwork and the, the base for it so thank oh, you <laughs>
1: yeah anyway, that was, again, a long-winded way to say these kinds of international comparisons can be useful to try to understand what is it about being in England that's different or or ends up with different patterns of health across low-income and high-income people. Obviously, the other issues that this helps to get a better sense of is what are, you know, are there public policy interventions in different places that can make make health better as people age, make brain health better as people age. So, you know, both kind of social welfare issues, um, healthcare systems, education systems, all of those kinds of issues too. Mm,
0: that was going to be my, my next question was how much do you think their healthcare system plays into it? I'm assuming a, a large part.
1: I, I think it, uh, it definitely has something to do with that again, especially at the lower end of the spe- lower end of the income spectrum for, um, you know, probably a bit better access to care in the national health service um, than here in the united states although again probably doesn't explain all of it i think because um, there's differences even even in older like the 65 plus population that in the united states when you get medicare coverage starting at age 65 the the insurance differences don't look as um important across countries although again you know as you as you're saying uh the National Health Service, or or even separate from the insurance issues, that might um, uh, that might have a an impact, or or show up as a difference across countries.
0: Mm. Thank you. That all that sure. all makes sense. So in the in the other paper, the trajectory of cognitive decline after incident stroke uh, from 2015, it's mentioned mm-hmm. that those who experience stroke have a greater decline in global cognition and executive function compared to those without stroke. Um, what quality of life difficulties arise from this and what is most helpful during stroke recovery, would you say?
1: Um, yeah, great questions there. and Really important, uh, again, I think, well, certainly again, um, potential problems after stroke, obviously, if it's affecting um, um, the musculoskeletal system. so if it's a motor problem after stroke and people are you know disabled in terms of not being able to um, to walk or use um, use upper extremities or low extremities, that's certainly going to be an, an issue in terms of just someone's quality of life, the amount of care that people need. That's another thing we focused on uh, in this health and retirement study. We, we collect a lot of information on how much time families spend providing care, which, um, you know, can end up being a, a big part of the economic impact of, of things like dementia or, or stroke, where, you know, there isn't actually a lot of economic cost of, of medicines or, or other care, but it's, or, or health care, but it's really the amount of time that, you know, someone needs just to get through the day. So to have, um, help with their activities of daily living, uh, um, as they're often called. So both stroke and dementia are, um, conditions that end up causing lots of impact on families, as I'm you know sure you know, but that, um, uh, those aspects of stroke are uh, are a big issue that you, you're hoping to avoid in, in both the acute treatment of stroke, but also in, in rehabilitation. So, um, you know, lots of uh, lots of studies show that uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, you know, having access to to good um, rehabilitation services after stroke uh, can, can just be a huge um, make a huge difference between someone's quality of life and how much uh, how much care they need um, afterwards. That paper, yeah, which again was led by a, a colleague here named Deb Levine, who I've worked with a bunch with um, both the health and retirement study data that the, the study you just mentioned was actually using a different uh, epidemiologic study in the United States called the REGARD study. That paper was interesting, sort of highlights some of the issues we were talking about before about how... You know, good control of cardiovascular risk factors can prevent cognitive decline. So, there were, in that study, what we found was there was both a, a initial decline in in cognitive function, sort of acutely right after the stroke, but also longer term, um, cognition seemed to decline quicker among those who had a stroke versus those who didn't, and probably for a couple of reasons. One, you know, the stroke itself, the damage to the brain could kind of uh, kick off inflammatory processes in the brain that uh, inured, neurodegeneration in the brain, um, you know, related to the, the death of the brain cells themselves. And that, uh, that could kind of put people on a, a worse trajectory. But also it's probably, again, related to uh, people with stroke have worse or, or higher levels of cardiovascular risks than, than others that don't. So things like, again, controlling blood pressure very well, controlling um, cholesterol, uh, diabetes, all those kinds of things. Um, if you don't control them well, it seems as though, again, that, that puts you on a, a quicker and steeper trajectory of cog- cognitive decline after the stroke.
0: Just also kind of in regard to that. So yeah, in knowing that there's so many different confounding factors that play into it. And it's hard to kind of parse through there. And I think, um, this question I like to ask as just a student who has to write mm-hmm. a bunch of things and, you know, mm-hmm. research a bunch of different things. So, um, just in that there are in doing this, I found there's so many different recommendations for vitamin D supplementation ranges. So as someone who has a lot of experience researching the brain, what would you say is the hardest part? in um, just kind of parsing through the literature and searching for, Consistent findings and then how to report those and
1: yeah no that's a great question Kirsten and actually a big uh a big uh, what I spend uh, a lot of time as a researcher is uh is exactly that trying to do studies that you can do a better job of saying this is leading to that um, versus uh that's leading to this uh, because you know as you know already just uh in the work you've done that as you just said that um um, yeah, the results of all studies are not clear, and not uh, there's conflicting uh, uh, conflicting results that seem to say uh, different different things uh, about the same hypothesis. I mean, th- there's a few things. Maybe I'll just so, sort of talk more generally about these kinds of studies. of Vitamin D is actually a great uh, is actually a great example, uh, like you said, that you know there's a range of different um, studies that have found different. Th- things, uh, you know, a few, a few sort of common and, uh, you know, sort of classic issues about trying to sort out uh, studies. One is, um, again, this question of confounding, which I'm sure you've uh, kind of heard about, and again, vitamin D or other kinds of dietary studies that say, you know, that are trying to say, if you eat this thing or take this supplement, you um, it Leads to you know better heart health or better brain health or, or etc. Um, confounding is a big issue that can kind of throw a wrench in the works and trying to understand what's causing what. So, you know, if it's the case that um, people who take vitamin D also are wealthier or also are more educated or um, spend more time exercising or thinking about their thinking about their health and you know if you think about it that that kind of makes sense if someone's taken the time to learn about different kinds of vitamins or or their diet it's often the case that they uh, you know have a have an outlook on their health that is um, you know they're spending more time investing in their health than others and so it's not actually the vitamin D that's leading to a good outcome, it's the fact that the vitamin D is related to the fact that you're um, exercising more or uh, just kind of thinking more about your health. So that's kind of a classic uh, issue in and, and complexity in, in trying to sort through the literature of, well, this, this study says vitamin D leads to this good outcome, but wait a second, were they able to control for the fact that people taking vitamin D are also more educated or, or wealthier or, or et cetera, et cetera. And, and it could be that it's, it's the being more educated or being more wealthy that uh, is actually leading to the, the good result. Um, just as a quick aside, the, during my medical career, uh, another kind of uh, classic example of that confounding issue is the, the question of you know whether women um, post-menopausal women should take estrogen therapy, estrogen progesterone therapy, hormone replacement therapy, as it's called. Um, will that help uh, decrease their cardiovascular risks and other um, other risks? And when I was in medical school, all of the, we, the recommendations were that uh, women should use hormone replacement therapy because um, by replacing estrogen and progesterone, it would decrease cardiovascular risk. And all of the sort of uh, observational epidemiologic studies showed a, a clear relationship between hormone replacement therapy and and lower risk of heart attack and, and better outcomes. But when uh, a randomized trial was actually done to test that uh, in the 90s, uh, 1990s, it was found actually, it was in many cases, the opposite—that um, people who women who were taking hormone replacement therapy seemed to be at higher risk for stroke uh, and other cardiovascular problems in the short term. So it turned out that um, all of the observational studies were were probably wrong because of this confounding issue that it's the, the women that were taking hormone replacement therapy were wow. um, actually yeah. you know wealthier and. Uh, more, more likely to exercise and, and do those kinds of things. So that's a um, important general class of issues to try to sort through the literature is this idea of confounding, have you done a good enough job of ruling out or um, the fact that it's not actually the, the vitamin D or the other kind of vitamin or other supplement or you know certain, um, certain dietary pattern, is is that really the the thing that's causing the the good outcome, or is it really something else? So that's one general issue. There, the other um, important general issue in, in looking at studies in the in the literature is is the general uh, term would be re- reverse causality. I don't know if you've ever heard that, yeah. heard that in in sorting through studies. So. Um, so again, for instance, uh, thinking about the question: Does vitamin D prevent um, cognitive decline? If, it, or you know, is, is vitamin D deficiency put you at higher risk for dementia and cognitive decline? Which a number, as you, I'm sure know, a number of uh, epidemiologic studies have, have suggested that. And that, um, so that could be the case. In looking at these studies, the the problem. Um, again, that can arise is that, is it the low vitamin D that's leading to the dementia or other outcomes? Or could it be that when someone starts having their cognitive decline, that they are become more, um, they don't go out of the house as much, so they're not getting as much sunshine, their Their diet changes, or, or some other, for some other reason, they're, uh, you know, or they're not able to make uh, their food as well, and they uh, they sort of change their diet. So for those reasons, yeah, again, you know the vitamin D related or the, the sunshine related vitamin D as well as dietary, um, you know it could be that the causality is actually going the other way that it's what you're picking up is not a not a relationship of low vitamin D leading to dementia, but kind of early dementia causing changes that. Um, Lead to a drop in vitamin D levels. So, unless you can kind of do longitudinal studies where you can kind of have these measures over time, this reverse causality is um, is always an issue too, or or can can be an issue that uh, that could be one reason why some studies say vitamin D does lead to this problem, whereas other studies say it doesn't.
0: Mm -hmm. It's tough. Yeah, I think especially with vitamin D and stroke, I think the biggest thing that they need is more randomized control trials and a lot of studies have different cutoff values whether they they divide like the deficient or sufficient patients into different quartiles or just have like a cutoff range or they measure cognitive decline differently so there's just so many things at play and and kind of just saying that vitamin d could be one of the risk factors for stroke is just definitely like a really large leap so would you say your answer is kind of just like well you're so accomplished that I feel like your answer is like let's do a randomized control trial but like in reporting some of these things yeah what do you find is the the best way to do that
1: yeah no I think that certainly um randomized trials uh are are certainly a gold standard for for trying to understand these these causal pathways and causal issues you may have um have you seen that um there's some question for instance whether vitamin d deficiency increases your risk of covid infection have you mm-hmm. seen any of seen that yeah and, the
0: uh, dr Hollick from um boston university was kind of talking about that that was like his most recent paper that came out was that yeah. um vitamin d is important for for you know reducing covid risk covid right yeah and again the
1: the theories are that vitamin d deficiency can affect immune function and mm. uh, and the, you know, performance of macrophages or other uh, white blood mm. cells and, and things like that. So I think, um, a number of people have called for clinical trials around that, um, that right. kind of, uh, question too. So I do think, uh, yeah, again, ultimately that, um, that can be very helpful. Like it was with the hormone replacement therapy, like I said, um, you know, the, the tough, uh, the reason why there isn't a clinical trial for everything is um, they take a long time and they're expensive. And mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes actually, and this is, um, again, another complexity uh, in, in understanding or interpreting the literature, while a, a clinical trial is um, really good at isolating, you know, is it this intervention? Is it the vitamin D supplement? Because you give, you randomize people and you give the one group, the vitamin D, and another placebo, Um, it's still the case that, um, you know, the people who enter clinical trials are are often not um, representative of what happens out in the real world. So you get, uh, again, a a sort of skewed view of the actual um, efficacy of, of the intervention in a clinical trial versus how people either take vitamin D in the out in the real world outside of a trial, or again, just the population can be different. Uh, the people, that, as I said, the people that volunteer for, for trials are sometimes the same people we we're talking about, the more educated, more mm-hmm. wealthy um, folks. So I think that, so while, uh, again, I think there's, um, most people would say, you know, to to get the right answer about um, a specific intervention or a specific supplement or vitamin, uh, and an outcome, a clinical trial is, um, will get you closest to the truth on that front. There are these other complexities that can still, um, still create
0: problems. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's, tough been doing your thesis it's tough to you know try yeah. to parse some of those out when there haven't even been that many randomized control trials um but that with that being said what so what do you know about vitamin D if anything and then also do you take any supplements
1: yeah good question I do not take supplements um I um you know things like a, a multivitamin or, or vitamin D for you know I do recommend especially older older folks um who are who? I, my patients, I'll uh, recommend uh, vitamin D supplementation. But I think I'm in the uh, I'm in the camp of uh, if you do have a, a, a relatively good diet and you're um, uh, you know don't have any clear GI related uh, you know abnormalities that um, that for most people uh, a balanced diet will give you most of the vitamins uh, that you need um, mm. for. Uh, to, to remain healthy but again I think um, there's there's very little downside to at least you know modest supplementation of vitamin D and other and other vitamins so I will typically tell my patients that uh, yeah unless unless they're taking mega doses that can cause uh, you know kidney stones or other things uh, are some of the, the, the problems related to uh, very high doses of vitamin D that that you know, I'm okay with that, and uh, and I think it's, um, you know, it certainly could be uh, doing some some good. Yeah, and again, in terms of vitamin D and dementia or, or stroke, as I said, I, um, I've worked with a number of colleagues who've looked at this study. I was a co-author on a number of papers, uh, epidemiologic papers, again, looking at vitamin D and, and dementia that did suggest that uh, vitamin D deficiency can increase your risk for cognitive decline and dementia, and again, some of the the hypotheses are around inflammation and uh, and immune function uh, problems, um, but again, I, I think there's there, there's also been some studies that have been negative on that front. So it is a uh, it's one of these uh, again kind of classic confounding problems because it um, uh, seems to be related with lots lots of different kinds of outcomes um, that can sometimes. Well, A, that could mean it's, it, it has uh, lots of effects in the body, which we know it does, or it could mean that you're missing something in terms of confounding. If, uh, you know, if what you're looking at seems to be related to lots and lots of different uh, bad outcomes, then sometimes that, that can make you a little more uh, concerned that you're missing some of the confounding issues going on.
0: Right. And something I learned with Dr. Hollock as well is that it's really hard to have like toxic levels of vitamin D. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it it doesn't hurt. And and a lot of the ranges they say are like 2000 to 4000 units. It Mm -hmm. also really just depends on age. And um, also like if you're pregnant or postmenopausal or um, I'm also in the camp of, I think that a, a well balanced diet will give you most of your vitamins and minerals. And if for vitamin D specifically, it's kind of tough because not a lot of foods have vitamin D. Like right. all milks are fortified with it, and there's like fatty fish and eggs, egg yolks. Um, but really, not a lot of foods have vitamin D. So right. it's better now, I guess that the sun's coming the out. The sun's out,
1: yeah. yeah. And that actually, I mean, that's another. You raise a good point there. That uh, that's sort of another of the fascinating parts about vitamin D is that. Uh, because of the relationship to sun um, and uh, sun exposure, you get these very different levels depending on the latitude that you're, you know, sort of Northern latitudes versus uh, mm-hmm. near the equator or, or Southern latitudes, as well as, uh, you know, the amount of melanin in your skin also. Uh, mm-hmm. So different, uh, different yeah. races uh, sort of absorb things differently. So that sort of adds another um, huge layer, <laughs> you know, layer of complexity to try to understand mm-hmm. uh um, what's going on there. Yeah.
0: Um, or even making connections of different latitudes and, um, risk or, um, incidence of schizophrenia Yeah, and yeah. Uh, vitamin D, how in certain latitudes vitamin D is less. And so the risk of, you know, having schizophrenia is higher and it's just like some, some crazy, like hail Mary connections are, are definitely being made.
1: That's right. There, my, my, uh, the chair of my dissertation committee back at the University of Chicago, when I'd get um, uh, frustrated or exasperated on uh, on trying to sort out all these, you know, when the results weren't coming out exactly right, or or as you're saying that uh, different studies are finding different things, his his general response was that, uh, yeah, Ken, the the world's a complicated place, which uh, <laughs> of course is uh, I mean, uh, is obvious, but uh, it is again in someone in in learning about science like you are, uh, I've been doing it for, uh, what, 25 years or so now. It is, it's is—it's good to remember that, uh, you know, when you're trying to make this very clear pathway from here to there, that uh, there's so many things going on, especially with the brain, obviously, uh, because it's such a complicated uh, organ that, um, yeah, the world's complicated. And there's uh, even the, th- the things we know about that are affecting uh, all of these relationships are complicated and we don't understand it but there's obviously there's still zillions of things we don't know about that uh, that are probably going on too so that's uh, mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons it's hard to uh, to sort through and uh, um, yeah it's good to be good to be humble and not uh, not beat yourself up too much if you can't uh, yeah. can't get to the right answer
0: that goes right into, I was going to say, like, what is one piece of advice you'd give to a 22 year old brain regarding the brain health, like brain health in general, or just general yeah. wisdom. Um, and what can people be doing differently? But I feel like that's a pretty good one. Just saying like, the world is complex. You know? <laughs> yeah.
1: In terms of understanding it, I think that's right. I do think uh, my stock, uh, what I tell all of my patients, uh, again, I'm a general internist, so see mainly older patients, but uh, my uh, recommendation to them about brain health is uh I boil it down to three words, which is that they should be they should walk, talk, and read. That's my uh, shorthand, which is um, you know the things that seem to be important in terms of uh, maintaining brain health. So, physical activity, walking, and exercise. i I'm, I'm to me it's uh, it is clear, and I do think that that's true that physical activity, um, you know, better better cardiovascular health, physical activity. Um, I think there's pretty clear evidence that that has. You know, not only benefits for your heart, but uh, for brain health. And then talking, you know, this idea of uh, staying socially connected and um, not being isolated, and uh, kind of how that keeps your brain functioning and working and uh, and staying connected. I, I think there's there's pretty good evidence there. That's one of the sort of the the really tough parts about COVID over the last year for you know not only. Everyone in terms of isolation, but older adults, especially those, um, you know, with sort of mild cognitive impairment or or in nursing homes, obviously, that mm-hmm. uh, that's just been an awful, uh, uh, made things a lot worse. I think just mm-hmm. the isolation because of this idea that uh, social connection uh, seems to preserve uh, and keep our brains resilient. And then reading again, kind of in a, in a similar way, I think there's there's pretty good evidence that uh, you know staying cognitively active and cognitively involved seems to be not just in social settings, but, you know, thinking about complex things and reading and, uh, Hmm. um, challenging your brain and challenging your brain. So that those are, so that's what I tell all my patients. And even if you're only 22, I think, uh, thinking about that, you know, staying physically active um, Hmm. diet is a good, good diet, Um, staying interested in the world and connected to the world. I think all of those things are, uh, are good for one's uh, brain health as well as mental health, just mm-hmm. uh, sort of staying uh, connected and, and, and interested.
0: And that's all really good to keep in mind. Yeah. Um, so just as a last fun one, how would you describe the brain in three words?
1: Wow, three words. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Very complex. It's hard to, to boil down to three words. But. Yeah,
1: well, actually, I guess that would be uh, one of my words would be complexity that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. again, that uh, the brain's often described as, you know, the most complicated thing in the universe that uh, the hundred trillion or so uh, synapses and, um, and connections that, you know, it, it really is the case that we don't we don't understand how it works. Uh, you know, memory, there's obviously lots of great science over the last hundred years or so that uh, makes it a bit clearer about how the memories get formed and what are the, mm-hmm. what are the biological changes. But, you know, and when, when you get right down to it, we really we understand so little of how the brain works that that's uh, complexity is mm-hmm. certainly one.
0: One of my only classes where we'd finish a topic and they'd be like, well, and we still don't know this, actually. That's, right.
1: <laughs> that's, that's absolutely right um which again is that's for me one of the fun parts about uh about the kind of research and work that i do is that you know there are so many questions right. still to be answered and uh it is a pretty fascinating uh you're never feeling like you're uh, you're done and you've got it uh, all figured out um i would also say again this the question of resiliency, or I'd describe the brain as resilient, that, um, again, that's what we're trying to do in, uh, in keep, keeping people's brains healthy, even after a stroke, mm-hmm. or even after um, um, medical problems that uh, that make it harder for the neurons to survive. It, it does seem clear that, um, you know, the brain can is stay plastic uh, into its, uh, into late life, uh, new neurons, new connections between the nerve cells and the neurons can be made and that uh, again that's one of the the theories Mm -hmm. about why staying socially connected and and cognitively active um, keeps your brain healthy and resilient is that uh, you're you're continuing to kind of maintain the the synapses and maintain the the connections that do whatever the brain does like I said we don't know exactly how it's working but uh, yeah I think the resiliency is, uh, is clearly one. What's the third one? I mean, this is kind of related to what we were just saying, but as we've discussed, I don't—I'm not convinced we'll ever have it all figured out. So, uh, mysterious would be uh, another mm-hmm. uh, description. There's a—there's yeah. actually a, a philosophical—what's um, the word? Branch is not the exact right word, but uh, kind of the m- mysterian view of the brain or of. Uh, of of consciousness, where uh, this idea that uh, we actually our brains can't figure out our brains, uh, you know yeah. that uh, it's kind of uh, we're never going to be able to 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 really understand everything. I don't think. Um,
0: Everyone. That's what I've heard about like infinity. It's like our brains are just not built to understand the concept of infinity. So, yeah.
1: I think, yeah. uh, so I, again, I don't know what, I, I don't have the final word on the, the philosophical uh, outcome there, but I do think that, um, yeah, it's mysterious, like we said. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, that, that's part of the fun of, uh, of trying to do research to try to understand at least a, a little piece of things. Right. And uh, again, hopefully uh, keep, keep, people a bit healthier than than they could have been Very well good. I know that
0: you have to head out because you have a meeting soon but yeah. uh, thank you so much for doing this and I will keep you updated on when I kind of edit it and put it together and uh, when it comes out
1: that would be great yeah, yeah and definitely keep me uh, posted I'd be interested to see uh, both how this comes out and uh, what you end up doing down the road if you end up uh, being in the neuroscience and uh, and medical world Be interested yeah, I to, to see will. what happens
0: you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed myself talking to Dr. Langa. I really like the advice he gives of walk, talk, and read because it is essential but also very simplified and doable. I think it is really incredible the insight that he gave over the potential that stroke has in explaining some pathologies of Alzheimer's disease. This further emphasizes just how complex the brain is and how disease is more than just discovering damaged proteins and that there can be many paths that lead to a similar result. He emphasized that blood flow in the brain is very important and good maintenance of that vascular system can decrease risk of cognitive decline. I also found it important when he was talking about socioeconomic factors that can lead to worse health, such as areas with higher pollution, which can equal worse cardiovascular health and can also directly interfere with how much vitamin D one gets. I also enjoyed the discussion of confounding factors and how the world is just a complicated place. The story about the hormone replacement therapy was fascinating where taking these hormone replacements was thought to lower women's risk for stroke through observational studies, but those taking it were wealthy and were more likely to exercise, so the idea that hormone replacement was as effective as described may not have been the case. Overall, it's really hard to make these definitive conclusions, and it's not all that easy, especially when clinical trials and randomized control trials are very expensive. Well, thank you again so much for listening, and tune in next time to talk about exactly how vitamin D may reduce stroke risk.